Uh, thank you, Nick. And I promise not to try to scare everybody too much before lunch, but a little bit of fear may be in here. Um, sanctions compliance over the last 25 years has changed quite a bit. When I was first out of law school, getting a question on sanctions was unusual, and it was an odd area of law applicable really only to U.S. companies. You didn't see cases where, for example, a German bank was making a loan to a Greek ship owner and the loan agreement would have sanctions language. That just didn't happen. Well, the world's changed. Now it's very unusual to see any commercial agreement in shipping, uh, be it a long-term charter or a loan agreement or what have you, that doesn't have sanctions language. And sanctions language is no longer limited to just U.S. sanctions. The EU has strong sanctions in place, and a number of countries within the EU as well have their own sanctions in place. Australia, Canada, Singapore, many countries have sanctions. So the level of work needed to comply with relevant sanctions has increased quite a bit. What's also changed is the aggressiveness of many countries in enforcing their sanctions, particularly the U.S the multi-million or even billion dollar penalties we've seen over the last few years over sanctions uh, violations have really been a huge wake-up call around the world. A number of the penalties that have been imposed have been on U.S. banks, uh, I'm sorry, on uh, banks which normally would not be considered U.S. banks. These banks are facing penalties due to what are deemed to be violations of U.S. sanctions in how they deal with U.S. dollars. Even though the banks are not based in the U.S., they may be dealing with U.S. funds. And that is where the U.S. is applying its sanctions programs. One other big change over the last 25 years is how enforcement is done. At one time, the Office of Foreign Assets Control didn't have a whole lot of resources to enforce it. For example, in the mid-1990s, Walmart was hit with a penalty for selling Cuban, um, Cuban origin clothing in its Canadian stores. And how OFAC found out about this was somebody went on vacation to Montreal, which is the poor man's Paris for the U.S. And while they were on vacation, they stopped by in Walmart to pick up a thing or two and happened to browse through the clothing racks and saw Cuban-made children's pajamas. And so Walmart was faced with a slap on the wrist in the 90s for selling Cuban pajamas. Now, OFAC has far more resources, and these resources are also available throughout the world. For example, vessel tracking is widely available. AIS systems may not be perfect, but government can see where a vessel has been. And so enforcement is much, much easier. So the risks related to non-compliance with sanction are much greater now. And the stigma associated with sanctions violations has also increased over the past few years. Also in the mid-90s, the New York Yankees were sanctioned almost every single year for violating the Cuban sanctions regulations. They were recruiting baseball players. Now two things have happened since then. One, the Cuban regulations have been changed so that it's a little easier for baseball to recruit and to follow those regulations. And two, the, number of, the amount of penalties has increased. The guidelines for penalties were changed to allow for higher and higher penalties. So instead of facing a $50,000 fine every couple of years, 
an organization that violates sanctions on a regular basis faces increasingly mounting costs up to two times the amount of the transaction. If that's a baseball player, well, multi-million contracts, dollar contracts over several years can really mount up, and the same for a ship owner. So, what do we do about a uh, sanctions compliance challenge? Well, let's start with the basics. For the U.S., what are the sanctions programs in place? Currently, there are five countries or regions subject to comprehensive sanctions. Comprehensive sanctions mean broad-based sanctions which really limit the amount of, of business that you can do with these countries or regions. Uh, the Crimea region in Ukraine, for example, Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and Syria. Until last, last fall, Sudan was also on this list, but those comprehensive sanctions have been lifted. There are also limited sanctions, which have various focuses. Many of them uh, limit the transactions that you can do with spe specified persons from those countries. And also, the, the terms of those sanctions also vary by quite a bit. Uh, one of the most recent ones are the sanctions against Venezuela, which are extremely limited. Um, and also sanctions against Russia for Ukraine. Those sanctions are extremely limited. Most business with Russia is permitted, but you do have to be careful and check those sanctions before doing any business. Well, maybe not. Okay. And also who those sanctions programs apply to varies as well. Although some sanctions provisions apply worldwide. For example, the prohibitions on using U.S. dollars for sanctioned activities apply worldwide. Other sanctions provisions apply only to U.S. persons. And who is a U.S. person? Well, it depends on the sanctions program. A number of the sanctions programs have a similar definition, which are limited to U.S. citizens, permanent resident aliens, which means green card holders, wherever they live. Entities organized under the laws of the U.S. or any jurisdiction within the U.S. For example, a Delaware corporation is a U.S. person, um, including foreign branches, uh, which does not mean foreign subsidiaries or affiliates. It means within the same organization. But I'll talk a little more about that in a bit because there's some gray areas there. Or any person in the United States any person in the United States would include, for example, a German bank or a Dutch bank that has an office in the U.S. But not all sanctions programs are the same. For example, Cuba has a much broader definition. The Cuban sanctions are far older than most of the other sanctions uh, programs, except for North Korea. And the language that the Cuban sanctions use, uses is, are very different. And what's most notable about the Cuba sanctions is number D at the, uh, number D, letter D at the bottom. Any corporation, partnership, association, or other organization, wherever organized or doing business, that is owned or controlled by U.S. persons. So, for example, if U.S. persons own a Marshall Islands corporation, that corporation is clearly a U.S. person owned or controlled in this language is not defined in the regulations. Does a 25% ownership mean control? It's hard to say. 
You'd have to look at the daily operational activities of the company to be able to figure that out. So these are just some of the challenges that you'd face with sanctions compliance. So you would need to check your, your contract language to make sure that those sorts of transactions which occur after the date of your, of your contract with new sanctions programs are still allowed or else you're, you're agreeing to things in your contracts that are not really required by law. And I touched on this before, but one of the other complexities in sanctions compliance is who are the sanctions directed at? And I go back again to Cuba because it's, it's one of the oldest sanctions programs. It's been around the longest and it's been very active lately as well. Cuba has recently seen a relaxation of some sanctions, particularly with respect to non-US persons. Uh, every ship owner knows the 180 day rule. After calling in Cuba, a vessel is not, not allowed to call in the U.S. for 180 days. But now there are some more exemptions. Now, if the vessel was carrying something that was classified, that if it was shipped from the U.S., would be classified under Export Administration Regulation 99, which is the catch-all. It means basically general cargo, not subject to export control. Then the 180-day rule doesn't apply. Some of the cargoes that could be carried to Cuba, for example, are crude oil or certain petroleum products. If a tanker is carrying that to Cuba, the 180-day rule no longer applies. The tanker can come directly to the U.S., doesn't need to wait six months. So that's one of the changes that we've seen. But there's still quite a bit of cargo that is not permitted and that the 180-day rule still kicks in. One other area, and there's a big question mark with this, where we've seen sanctions applied to non-US persons is Iran. Right, and I had to put a question mark on my slides because right now, trade with Iran by non-US persons is still permitted by the US. But what's been happening lately has put that in a bit of doubt. In the fall, President Trump refused to sign a waiver stating that Iran was in compliance with its nuclear program. Every 90 days, the president has to sign a new waiver. The time for a waiver came up last month. The president signed that waiver this time, but announced that this would be the last time he's signing, and he called on the other states that are parties to the Iran nuclear agreement to discuss new sanctions against Iran and whether changes would be made to that agreement. So right now we're in a period of uncertainty with respect to Iran. It's not clear whether there will be a new accord on the Iranian nuclear agreement, whether the US will go off on its own and impose additional sanctions, or whether another waiver will be granted. So for right now, Iran is still not subject to new sanctions, but there's a big question mark about what will happen in the future. So um, stay tuned and uh, keep your friendly neighborhood sanctions lawyer on speed dial for that one. Finally, one other way that the U.S. Uh, encourages compliance with its sanctions are through reaching out to non-U.S. persons with other connections to the U.S. Uh, I've already spoken a bit about how the U.S. has used its financial system 
transactions in dollars must be compliant with U.S. sanctions to encourage that sort of compliance. One other way is through the US of, use of the U.S. courts, and I'll give an example from that. Uh, from the TMT Today Makes Tomorrow bankruptcy a couple of years ago, there was a sanctions violation that arose out of that. One of TNT's ships, B-Whale, um, transferred oil that was of, of Iranian origin while the company was in bankruptcy. Because the company chose to go into bankruptcy in the United States, OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, deemed that it was a U.S. person for the purpose of U.S. sanctions. And because B-Whale was considered to be a U.S. person, B-Whale's transfer of Iranian oil was in violation of U.S. sanctions. Now, the only penalty that was imposed on B-Whale was a notice of violation, but it was a clear signal that if you're using the U.S. court system, you have to be expect to be treated as a U.S. person for, for purposes of sanctions. And I'm just about out of time, but one thing I want to mention that's not on the slides is with respect to capital markets. One thing that is in the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission rules is a requirement that any listed U.S. company must disclose all transactions with Iran in its filings with the SEC. Even if the company does not meet the definition of a U.S. person under the sanctions that we looked at earlier, all those transactions must be disclosed. Now, consider for yourself whether disclosing these transactions in a public filing that is watched by every member of the press would have an effect on the, on the, on the, on the shares price or even whether an offering could be made at all. Um, this is yet one more way that the U.S. finds to encourage compliance with the sanctions. I'm out of time and I want to keep everything on track, but if anybody has some sanctions questions, I'll be here all day and please catch me outside. Thanks. I think the conclusion is we cannot navigate safely without drain. So this is a very complicated topic and uh, you really took us through it uh, in, in a very clear way. 